0: it's time for growing texas olives the only podcast made specifically for you the texas olive grower and to my knowledge it's still the only podcast in the world fully dedicated to just talking How to Grow Olives. Thanks for being here today. I am your host, Stephen Janak. Well, I I guess it's a beautiful day outside. Uh, We're somewhere around the third week of May, I believe about the 20th of May, 2022. And relatively, it is pretty outside, but it's awfully hot and dry. And I guess that's not unusual for Texas, uh, middle of May, to be hot and dry. But we're kind of exceptionally hot and dry. A lot of folks haven't really received significant rainfall since October, especially in obviously the western portions of the state, and it's uh it's it's getting kind of bad. Uh, we desperately need some rain, maybe a break from the temperatures. And the forecast does look like maybe next week uh, there will be some of that, but we'll uh, I think we'll wait and see what actually happens. Today in the episode, we're gonna uh, I'm hoping it's really actually gonna be brief. Uh, We're going to talk about May in the olive orchard in Texas, and that part will be brief, kind of what's happening in May, what typically would be happening, what we should be thinking about, Uh, and then we're going to briefly answer a few questions and address a few concerns that have come to me from growers over the last few weeks. Uh, But before we jump into that, just quickly, a couple of housekeeping uh, items to address, of course, hopefully you are aware of the June 3rd program uh, that I will be hosting the what 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 did I call it uh, Texas Olive Grower Update and Seminar. <laughs> I thought about that name for like weeks, wondering what to call this thing. So, uh, anyways, it is what it is. Uh, But June 3rd in Uvalde, Texas at the A&M AgriLife Research and Extension Center, we will have a a program on Texas olives uh, starting at 8.30 a.m. going to about 1 p.m. And it really is going to be, I think, a good program uh, applicable to existing growers as well as new and prospective growers. Uh, So if anybody's thinking about growing olives in Texas, this is the program to come to. Uh, This is going to give you everything you need to know to make that decision, and it should be very beneficial to new and existing growers as well. So that's coming up. It's a free program. Make sure you RSVP. If you did not get the link for the RSVP or the information, uh, like obviously reach out to me, phone, text, call, email, uh, however else you want to contact me, and I will get that information out to you. Uh, UC Davis Olive Center is having a sensory, olive oil sensory training. Uh, So if you want to make a trip to Davis, California, and learn about, uh, you know, olive oil quality and and what it takes, uh, how, how the production and growth practices affect olive oil quality, how the milling practices affect quality, and then just sharpening your sensory skills in terms of evaluating olive oil quality and maybe blending and they probably do a bunch of other stuff anyways sensory training uh at uc davis olive center Uh, i forget the dates i think it's like the 23rd through the 27th of june but anyways it's kind of later june uh they're still taking sign up right now they they really uh Uh, I talked to the the center director. They really want some Texas folks there, so it's an open invitation to you guys. So check that out uh, if you're interested. I can get you the information if you need, uh, but it's all, of course, online on the UC Davis Olive Center website. One last announcement, uh, also from UC Davis Olive Center. It's not been uh, posted or announced yet, but uh, I was talking to the center director, and they are going to be doing an olive production training, uh, this year. I don't think they've really done one since, um, like 2018 or 2017 or something. Uh, so it's been a few years since they've done an actual training on, on how to actually grow olives for oil production. Uh, and that one's going to be in July. Like I said, I haven't seen it announced yet, so I don't have dates on it yet, but he did tell me that sometime in July, I think, uh, they are going to be having an olive production course uh, and if you want to go, you'll see me there. I'll be at that one. I won't be going to the sensory one. Uh, although it, it may be very valuable. I just, uh, to me, it's a little bit cart before the horse kind of thing. Um, I want to grow the trees, make the fruit before we learn how to, you know, fine tune the, the quality of the oil and all those things. So anyways, there you go. Those are the announcements. Um, be on the lookout for those things coming up okay, may in the olive orchard what is what may typically be happening? Well, let me just say at this point I am not aware of any orchard in the state that has uh, made flowers and set any fruit. There are a couple of scattered trees that I've seen and heard about here and there that that did flower and make some fruit but by and large, to my knowledge no fruit production in Texas in 2022. If I am wrong, maybe let me know about that. Uh, obviously, you don't have to; nobody has to report these things to me. But I sure would be interested to know. Uh, that's uh, so. Anyways, if you know of something out there, give me a shout. Uh, so, but but if there were orchards that had uh, had flowered and set some olive fruit this year. You know, the middle to the end of May, we're just uh, we're still in that kind of fruit set period. Obviously, uh, bloom would typically be done by now and fruitlets would be set and starting to grow, uh, but we're still kind of in that fruit set period where it's kind of a sensitive period where we're still susceptible to fruit drop. Uh, if the tree would would experience some kind of stress, it would still potentially drop that fruit. From what I've read, heard, and experienced, uh, it seems about about June um, is the time where, if that olive fruit is still on there by June, then uh, then it's typically gonna gonna hang on the tree for the rest of the year, regardless of of uh, a little bit of stress. Now, obviously, severe stress, severe severe water stress or something, it probably might eventually drop those fruit, but you'll see shrivel and stuff first um and there would be chance to correct that but so that's where we are now uh middle to end of may still kind of in that late fruit set period and this is a a sensitive period uh you know we're going to talk about this a lot at the june 3rd program developmental periods of the of the olive tree and how that applies to our management Um, but this whole time period from before bloom through fruit set up until uh pit hardening what we would call endocarp's clarification (laughs) That just means the pit inside the developing fruit is starting to harden. Once that once that pit starts to harden, uh, it seems like it's it, the fruit is pretty much set and it's going to stay there on the tree. But this whole time period, say obviously depending on the variety and where you are in the in the state uh, and the weather that we get. Sometime from like the 1st of February through about the 1st of middle of June is, is a sensitive time period for the olive tree. It really needs to have optimum water and nutrient uh, availability, especially if it's going to be setting a crop. So that's kind of where we are, or where we would be if there was uh, productive orchards this year. So just something for you to think about. Uh, most of us are, are most of you, I should say, are... Are vegetative, we're rebuilding, regrowing, maybe replanting orchards, and um, and if that's the case, if you're regrowing a tree, if the tree is not to full production size yet, or if it's a newly planted tree or one or two years in the ground by this time, uh, we also want to avoid any kind of stress. You know, sometimes we do talk about kind of a reduced, a uh, managed deficit irrigation on olives, and that can be useful. But if we're in the early stages of establishing or regrowing an olive orchard, you really want no stress on those trees. You really want them to have everything they need, all the water, all the groceries, all the conditions, all the weed control, uh, because you're just trying to grow a tree. You just want that tree to grow as much as possible. Uh, We're not limiting ourselves on growth um, in the early stages of an orchard. We want to grow that tree as fast and as much as possible within reason. Uh, so we get it up to size and we get to production sooner than later. We've talked about all this. And obviously that that's going to take some, some serious close management, especially now, uh, with so many of us being so dry and the temperatures being so high. And it's also been windy and a dry wind at that. You know, transpiration rates are going to be extremely high. Think about that tree. It can't go inside the AC during the middle of the day like we do. It's stuck right there in its spot, and it's got to have water and nutrients in the soil uh, to be able to handle that that stress. It really is temperature stress. So we really need to be paying close attention to irrigation, uh, you know. And I think maybe we overlook irrigation, uh, or or at least maybe in my perception, we've overlooked irrigation a bit and its importance for olives. We tend to but think about fertilizer and special things and the weather and stuff. But, man, irrigation is the basis, the basis of everything. These trees got to have the right water at the right place at the right time and the right amounts and not too much, but not too little. So you might, if you haven't done this in about 6 or 12 months, get out there and maintain do some maintenance work on the on the irrigation system this should probably be done probably a good uh, a good thing to be doing in january december january uh, before we kind of start the irrigation season go through open up three four or five of those drip lines at one time turn on the water flush them out until um, the water runs clear and then maybe let it run another 30 minute, 30 seconds or a minute uh, just to make sure everything is cleared out of there. And you don't want to do more than about four or five lines at a time. Uh, you just, you'll just you lose the pressure and volume of water that it really would need to actually clean those things out. So perform some maintenance. Uh, make sure the lines are cleaned out. Go go through and look for leaks. Uh, folks often overlook leaks, especially if they're kind of small. You just have a little spray, uh, you know, where, a, where an emitter maybe didn't fit right uh, or is leaking. Uh, and you may think that's minor, and it, in the grand scheme of things it might be, but you know that even a small spray uh, of a leak can put out more than the drip emitter is made to put out. And so those trees in that area maybe get too much water, uh, and that may mean the trees downstream in that drip line don't get enough water because we're losing it at the leak. Um, and, and regardless of all that, it's just a waste of water. We can lose thousands and tens of thousands of gallons just in a few irrigation cycles with a couple of leaks like that. And I know it's constant, you know, there's all kind of things, especially now when it's so dry, all kind of animals that want to, want a piece of your irrigation, uh, rats and, and, uh, mice, rabbits, jackrabbits, uh, you name it. There's other things that, that want to chew on the, Chew on the drip lines cause leaks, so there's always going to be something to fix, but we need to stay on top of that and pay close attention to the uniformity of water distribution through the orchard. Uh, And We're going to talk about this in some detail at the June 3rd program. I just don't have time to go into those details today, but really kind of audit your irrigation. Are you getting uh, a sufficient amount of water to that back corner that's farthest away from the pump? Are you getting the same amount of water there as you are at the very first, you know, the corner that's closest to the pump or the corner of the orchard that's closest? Uh, and there's different ways to audit that. And you can, of course, everybody has the Internet. You can look up these ways. I don't have time to talk about them, but really need to be paying close attention to to our irrigation systems, cleaning, making sure the filters are clean. Uh, taking care of any leaks, even leaks at the filters, may cause a loss of a loss of pressure, a loss of volume flow, and can and you may think that you're putting out enough water, but a few leaks here and there is going to add up to actually quite a bit. And now all of a sudden you're not applying enough water to these trees. These trees dealing with 100 degrees and 25 mile an hour dry winds. So really, don't overlook the small things or what you think may be the small things. Uh, And then really pay close attention and and manage and audit your irrigation of the soil. Uh, You know, if if you're just, I don't like to irrigate just based off of emotion and feelings. And that's often what we do. Oh, it's hot. I feel hot. I feel stressed. I feel dry today. You know, it's kind of rough out there. I'm going to turn the water on. And that's, it's just not a great uh, a great way to do it. We need to have some kind of measurements, some kind of monitorings that we that we use to make these decisions on when and how much to water or to irrigate, really. Uh, and we're going to talk about irrigation and all these things like I said in quite a bit of detail at the June 3rd program, so you know, selfless plug for myself again, I guess. Uh but, uh, you know, think about maybe using soil moisture meters. We're going to talk about those in some detail. But you've got to have some way to monitor what's actually going on to make the right management decisions. At the very least, you're using a shovel in your hands or an auger to auger into the soil And go out there in a dry spot away from the irrigation right now while it's so dry and go dig down two, three feet and feel that soil at two and three feet and feel what very dry soil feels like. And then go out to the drip in the orchard and go to it right after an irrigation set and dig down and feel what your soil type feels like when it is saturated. Just so that you get to... to Understand how it feels and looks when your soil is at those two extremes of very dry and very wet. And then after your irrigation set, dig down underneath that drip and, and see, okay, did I wet the top six inches or did I wet the top six feet? And then, you know, as you're digging, maybe you're digging next to a tree and you kind of look at looking out for roots. Where are the roots of these trees? You know, it's obviously going to depend on size. And the majority of fine feeding roots of an olive tree tend to be quite shallow, sort of. Uh, basically the top, uh, the top 18 inches, maybe the top 24 inches of soil. That's where most of the roots are. So dig at least a two-foot hole and see. Did you wet down to that two-foot line? Were you able to get enough water out to wet, fully wet that profile and, and deliver water to all those roots? Or was your irrigation more superficial? And are you not actually getting enough to that tree? Are they stressed for that? So really, like I said, we're going to talk more about this um, at the June 3rd program. We're going to talk about soil moisture monitors. We're going to talk about uh, using evapotranspiration rates to kind of understand water use and help guide our, our application of water decisions. May even talk about using a pressure chamber because that's kind of the final Uh, real determination of what's actually happening out there is determining the water status of the actual tree. And we do that with a pressure chamber. And there's maybe a couple of other tools that we'll discuss that are available to farmers. Uh, But that's the real final way to tell what's actually happening. You can look at soil moisture monitors. You can dig down and feel we can look at ET values and see how much water needs to be replaced. But in the end, we've got to evaluate, is it actually getting to the tree? Is the tree actually using it? How is the tree actually feeling in response to all this? So we'll talk about all that. Uh, let's see. Uh, fertilization uh, is another thing you might be thinking about, Uh Uh, And like I said, most of us, a lot of you are out there reestablishing, planting, regrowing uh, smaller trees. Um, You know, there was an interesting study out of Uvalde at the Research Center. They did uh, an olive establishment study, and they they looked at the effect of nitrogen fertilization on uh, the growth and establishment of new trees. And basically, their findings were that applying nitrogen fertilizer to a young, uh, newly planted tree did not enhance growth or establishment of that tree and in fact may have had some negative effects on growth and establishment. If we dig into that study a little bit more, we find out uh, that uh, their preplant preplant soil moisture, uh, excuse me pre-plant soil uh, fertility test showed 25 part per million of available nitrate in the soil per acre. And if we do the math on that, it's simple math, 25 part per million per acre is equal to 50 pounds of available nitrate nitrogen per acre. And 50 pounds is quite a bit. 50 pounds is maybe what we would apply to an orchard that's fully mature and is hanging a a crop maybe in terms of 3 or 4 tons per acre. Uh, so 50 pounds of actual nitrate available pre-plant? I can see why their additional nitrogen fertilization didn't have a positive effect on growth and establishment of new trees. So the findings of the study don't say that just don't fertilize olives if, if you know newly planted olive trees establishing orchards. The findings basically say if you've got sufficient amount of nitrates already available in the soil, it probably doesn't benefit you to add more. And so that just goes to show the importance of soil testing. And that's something that probably should have already been done this year. That's probably something we should do in June. I mean, excuse me, in January. Maybe again in May to see where our soil fertility levels are riding. Uh, So if you've got maybe over 10 part per million available nitrates and you're establishing new trees or growing young trees, I probably wouldn't hit those with an additional nitrogen fertilizer. You might look for any severe deficiencies, phosphorus, potassium, uh, magnesium, sulfur, iron, zinc, maybe boron, and you may address some of those if you've got a deficiency in those. You should be looking at last year's leaf sample analysis to see if the trees were lacking anything at that time that you need to put in the ground or put on the tree now to make up for that deficiency. So that's um, that's kind of what, what maybe should be going on in the orchard. Uh, on the, I think there's there's those people regrowing, reestablishing uh, young small orchards, and on the other side, I think there's people that have mature trees that don't have a crop this year. And if you've got mature trees that are kind of in decent shape, again, more these are folks more towards the south and west. Uh, then we're also probably not really pushing these trees hard with a lot of nitrogen. Probably some small doses of nitrogen, Um, but we we just, you don't want to really, you don't want to encourage what I would call luxurious consumption of nitrogen by the olive tree. And there's some studies that show that that luxurious consumption or over-application of nitrogen, you know, the tree will use it all and it'll grow as fast as you want to push it. Uh, But that is sometimes has a detrimental effect on later making and convincing and making the tree want to produce flowers and fruit. So we really don't want to push them too hard. If they don't have a crop on them this year, then there's not a lot of nitrogen demand. Uh, The nitrogen that they need is just going towards growing new, new shoots, new twigs, new branches, new leaves. Um, You know, springtime in the orchard, you often see some of the older leaves on the tree kind of start to turn funky colors with funky patterns. I call it modeling. They start to model and turn yellow, and they easily drop off, and you'll see leaf drop. And if it's just the two- and three-year-old leaves that are showing those symptoms, that's normal. A lot of people call me at this time with, with pictures of those leaves and say, I've got peacock spot no peacock spot has never been confirmed in texas not not to this point or to my knowledge at least that is what's happening at that time in the spring with older leaves turning colors and dropping off is just remobilization of nutrients in those leaves and sending it towards new growth you know the olive tree really only holds on to its leaves for two or three maybe four years but after two or three years generally that tree is that that, that old leaf is sacrificed the nutrients available in it are remobilized and sent out to towards the new growth. So, that's kind of what's going on in May, uh, in the in the Texas olive orchard. Let me see here. Uh, at twenty something minutes, twenty four minutes. That's not bad. Uh, let me. I wanted to address just a couple other questions I had come up. Um, a couple of emerging issues at this time in the in the year. And we've seen a, I've seen a couple of reports, a couple of orchards that are dealing with the, the caterpillar. Our old friend, the four-spotted palpita moth, or the, the larvae of that moth. Uh, one grower had to make an make a insecticide application already at this point. Uh, so be on the lookout for that insect. Uh, you know, it's a drought year. There may not be as much forage available elsewhere for these animals. And they may be looking for your orchard as a, as a food source. If you're unfamiliar with the four-spotted palpita moth caterpillar, uh, let me know. If you don't know what it looks like, if you haven't heard me talk about it, let me know. I will send you. I put out a, a newsletter a couple of years ago with some really good pictures, really de- good description of kind of how we think this insect works. Uh, but if you haven't seen those, let me know. So uh, if you've had had a history of this insect, or even if you haven't, uh, I would be scouting. Uh, quite often, several times a week, looking at the trees, watching out for these guys to come in. And where you want to focus your efforts are on the the terminal ends of growing branches and shoots. You're looking at the very tips of the new growth. That's where these caterpillars tend to start. Uh, When they hatch out, they're very small, less than a quarter inch long, they're kind of pale green, and so they tend to blend in with the foliage and you really need to look close so that you can find them early. And we can typically, if we find them early enough, we can save money by applying a, a lighter uh, a lighter rate of insecticide or, or maybe doing something else uh, to get these guys under control before they get out of control. <laughs> uh, so look at the terminal, the new growth. Uh, sometimes you'll see maybe a real fine webbing around the new growth, and that's indicative of these guys. Uh, look for little little black little black spots. Uh, kind of looks like dirt or grains of black grains of sand. That's obviously caterpillar frass is what we would call it. So that can be a sign of these guys getting started. Uh, and then of course you'll you'll see if you look closer, uh, just some feeding damage to those leaves. And you want to catch them early because you know, I think this caterpillar has maybe a four to six week cycle where it's in this caterpillar stage. And while it's young, those first maybe three or four weeks, it really doesn't consume a lot of foliage. But those last couple of weeks when the worm caterpillar gets full size, they can consume about 80% of what they're going to eat in their lifetime just in those last two weeks. So as they get bigger, you know, the problem is not maybe as noticeable at first then all of a sudden you go out the next day, the next week, and now you've got a real problem on your hands. They're eating leaves. They, I've seen them eat fruit. They can really cause a problem. So we really want to catch them early. Uh, we've got a, I've got lists of insecticides that are useful for these guys. There's BT, of course, the, the biological organic product, BT. And really, BT works well on small, immature stages of the, of the caterpillar. If you've got mature ones that are over an inch long, I probably wouldn't rely on BT. Uh, there's spinosad. Spinosad, I think, is labeled for use. Um, it's it's probably a, maybe a little bit stronger than BT, but but it's a good one. It's organic. Um, I would probably try using it on something up to an inch long. If they're if they're bigger than that, I might go for something else though. On the on the non-organic side, uh, this is not a product recommendation or. Uh, this is not a, an endorsement of the product, uh, but one that we've used with some success that I like is a product called Altacor, which I think they're doing away with that brand name and switching it uh, to Vantacore. Uh, and the reason I like this product, it's not, not synthetic, but it's kind of a soft product. It's targeted. It's only effective really on caterpillars, grasshoppers, Maybe katydids, and I think there's maybe a beetle in there somewhere, some kind of Japanese beetle or scarab beetle. Uh, but it doesn't have an effect on other insects. No beneficials are harmed, uh, so that's a good thing. It's a little bit pricey. It's going to be a little bit more expensive than the others we talked about already. Uh, but it has that selectivity, and it has some systemic properties. It kind of gets into the leaf, and, and it doesn't really translocate through the plant, but it kind of gets into the leaf. So that even if it rains the next day, that product is still in the leaf and you're still going to have control of of any caterpillar or grasshopper that's feeding on those leaves. And I want to say it lasts about 14 days or so. So a great product um, with a lot of potential, um, a nice selective product. Otherwise, we're looking at some other synthetic, uh, non-organic products like the pyrethroid insecticides. And there's many of those, again, that's on that list. If you don't have my list of insecticides for olive orchards, let me know. I'll send it to you. Uh, but the pyrethroids can work very well. They tend to be a lot cheaper than, than some of the other uh, synthetic or even the organic products tend to be much cheaper. Uh, but they're broad spectrum. They're not going to be selective. They're going to kill basically anything that comes into contact with the spray. But they do work very well. They're very powerful against uh, a bit against these caterpillars, just also powerful against everything else so those are kind of the options so be on the lookout for that caterpillar Uh, the last thing some folks have asked about uh, fire ants in the orchard now fire ants aren't uh, directly damaging to the trees Uh, there's only one species of ant that i know of that directly damages living trees and that'd be the leaf cutting ant and we'll talk about that maybe in another episode Uh, But fire ants can still cause a problem. You know, they're in the soil, they're around there where you're trying to work and you're getting bit. Uh, That's a pain in the, you know what? And uh, often if you see ants up in the olive tree, it is an indication of some other problem, usually a scale problem. So scale insects, uh, you know, pierce into the the plant and they suck out the sap. And when that sap comes out, the scale insect is still kind of sugary and the ants like that sugary excrement and they may farm the scales to collect that stuff and eat it. And so if you see ants on the tree, the ants are not attacking the tree, but look closely for scale or some kind of other insect, and that's often what's going on. The big problem I see with fire ants uh, is, especially for young, uh, newly planted or establishing orchards, a lot of us are using trunk protectors, which I think are great, but those ants also think they're great too. And so they like to build their nests inside of those trunk protectors. And again, that's probably not uh, directly damaging to the tree, uh, but it does pile up soil, usually soil that stays moist right around the trunk, and they may pile it up 12 inches high, as high as the tube is. Uh, and that cuts off oxygen availability. It keeps, uh, keeps the trunk wet. Um, that's just not a good thing for, for the health of the tree it may encourage some incidence of disease or some kind of rotting or other insects that may actually do damage to the trunk. Uh, so that's a problem. The good news is fire ants can be controlled quite uh, effectively, and I'll encourage you to look for a fire ant bait. Again, I've got that insecticide list with recommended products. One that I would, would uh Encourage you to look at closely again, not an endorsement, but a recommendation based on experience in the orchard uh, is a product called extinguish plus and extinguish plus is an ant bait. It has two active ingredients, one that is a uh, kills them by ingestion and one that is an insect growth regulator. So as the as they feed it to the small, the young ants, it actually stops their growth and development. Uh, So it takes a little bit of time for it to be effective, for the ants to actually go away after you apply it, but it can have long-lasting effects. It can keep your orchard or your yard or farm or whatever pretty clean of ants for an extended period, maybe four, five, six, seven months, uh, depending on the, the, the intensity, I guess, of your infestation. Uh, But Extinguish Plus works really well, or look for some of those other labeled products that have an insect growth regulator in them. I really like ant baits. Uh, They're a lot better than the other products that are out there. Uh, When you go to buy ant control products, a lot of those are just contact killers. You know, the liquids, the powders, even the granular things that you put out and you're supposed to water in. If it doesn't say bait on the bag, then it's just a contact killer, and it's killing only... Basically, those foraging workers that come out above ground. And it's not working to kill the queen, kill the mound. So that's why I like a bait. Um, Use fresh bait. Don't use old bait. Obviously, ants don't want to eat old, rancid food just like us. They're going to pick up a fresh bait better. Uh, You need to understand timing. Timing of that application is important. Um, Research shows that ants really aren't that active above about 90 degrees um, or below about, I don't know, 55, 60 degrees. So yeah, if it's going to be hundred degrees for a week, that's uh, probably not the time to apply it. Or if it's going to rain within say 48 hours, that's probably not the time to apply it. We'd like to get it out in nice mild conditions, uh, with no rain in the forecast for about 48 hours. And after about 48 hours, if you put it out and they're foraging, uh, that, that bait should all be gone. They should have taken it all back to the nest and underground. So you've got to know to put it out when the ants are foraging. Uh, If you think the conditions are right and you want to check that, go find yourself an ant mound, get you a potato chip or a piece of a hot dog or maybe just a little teaspoon full of the bait. Don't disturb the mound. Place the bait or the hot dog or the chip somewhere near it or maybe on top of the mound. Come back in 15, 20 minutes. And if the ants are all over that, whatever you set down, then you know they're actively foraging. If there's nothing around, no ants on it, for some reason it's not a good time. Uh, but if they're on it, they're foraging, go put your bait out. And the good thing about bait, um, it doesn't need to be perfectly evenly distributed over the entire orchard floor surface. You just kind of need to get it out there. So even if you put it you know, down the center of each row, maybe you're able to spread it in a 5, 7, 10-foot strip, you go over to the next row and spread in another five, seven, ten foot strip. And maybe there's some space in between with that didn't get covered. That's okay. The ants go out and forage. They're going to go 10, 15, 20 feet away from the nest to find forage. And if they find that bait, they're all going to travel as far as they need to, to grab that bait, take it back to the, to the mound. So ant bait works really well when you do it correctly. Uh, If you've got a heavy infestation, you've never treated them before, you might do a kind of a spring-summer once application, and then you might do a second one maybe in the fall when when temperatures get kind of mild again. But once you kind of get them under control, it might just be a a once-a-year thing. All you need is kind of a spring application, and that's going to keep them under control uh, very, very well. So, baits for ants... Watch for the caterpillars, probably most of us are taking it sort of easy on on fertilizer for, for olive trees this year, uh, but really pay close attention to irrigation, uh, really start to think about that intensely, and then get prepared for the June 3rd program in Uvalde to really learn a lot more about, about all of that. So, I think that's all I'm going to have for today, uh, 35 minutes or so, that's not bad it's not exactly brief but shorter than some of my others so hope it helps uh, and uh, hope to see you on on june 3rd so with that you guys try to stay cool out there (laughs) take care of each other all right and you take care of those olive trees and we'll talk to you again soon when it's time again for growing texas olives